Good morning. I love coming here. <laughs> I do. It's just home. It's good to be here. Um, you know, we have this discussion a lot around crossroads um, because it comes back to us from time to time that the music is too loud. And instead of trying to figure that out, and maybe everyone should just close their eyes right now, raise your hand. You don't have to close your eyes if you don't want to. Raise your hand if you think it's too loud. Because we really do want to pastor this. I'll give you one more chance. Raise your hand if you think it's too loud. Okay. It's not loud enough. <laughs> there you see. <laughs> Crazy. All right. <laughs> you know what I love? We are in a gym right now, aren't we? I love it. Okay. Um, we're, we're, we just think through that stuff. We don't do these things thoughtlessly. I just want you to know that. Um, second of all, there's a time and season when Tuesday night prayer was kind of the bedrock of our church. It was the core. And what happened is we phased out our Tuesday night prayer into other areas um, in our church, 24-7, uh, house churches, different ministries. And I think what we've come to is this realization. And I don't even want to say we. God, this on my heart. Um, and I'm speaking right now. I don't do this too often as the lead pastor. We need to get back to Tuesday night prayer. We need a place where we can gather, uh, where we can intercede. And I really want to, it, it, it will be just that. We are going to priest. We are going to plead with God on behalf of the broken marriages, on behalf of the needs of this church, on behalf of our city, on behalf of our nation, on behalf of the nations. That's what it will be. Okay? We're going for it. We're not going to do it on Tuesday night, though. Please get this. Yeah, I love it. Okay? Um, we're going to do it on, because we can't. Our space is limited. We're going to do it on Wednesday night. We're going to kick this thing off. I think we're going to kick it off every other week. But after this response today, again, this is home. This is the heartbeat of Crossroads. Your response right now makes me wonder if we should be doing it every week. Let me just pray on that, and you can get back to me. But we're going to start Wednesday. What day? Wednesday, March 14. Okay? I love it. This feels right, and I can see it in your eyes that it feels right to you. Okay. Um, we're uh, in this new series on the Kings. And this is a part of our Bible, so we need to know it. We need to know why it's here. We need to know what God's trying to communicate. And really at the whole heart, and I would say this is the whole heart of the Bible. The Bible is a message about the king and the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, in its most basic form, is God's rule breaking into chaos and bringing shalom. Now, if you want a little bit more in-depth definition, uh, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing and bringing God's rule and God's blessing to the world. It's the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's in this part of our Bible, Kings, you could also add First and Second Samuel and Chronicles to this, we get this added dimension to the kingdom of heaven, and it's the king. So now it's God's people in God's place under God's king. And what I want us to see is what God is doing 
is he's taking his most prized possession, his people, and he's entrusting them to his king to shepherd them, to lead them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is why the king in the Bible is called God's son or the son of God. Because the king is the new Adam. He's placed in God's garden in Jerusalem to care and to cultivate God's new Eden, which is Israel, so that they can be a nation of priests bringing God's blessing to bear in all creation. That's the biblical framework. Everything now rises and falls in the king. He's Israel's representative. In a sense, the king is the true Israel. As we saw a couple weeks ago, this thing got off to a great start with David. David's a man after God's own heart. David made his mistakes. But David is the author of the Psalms, the book of worship. He loves God. And he's a shepherd, and he shepherded his people. Then David's son Solomon. Solomon really brings Israel into a golden age. Israel reaches its heights under Solomon. In fact, there's this, this description in 1 Kings 4, verse 25, where it says this under Solomon. It says, every man from Dan, that's the very north, to Beersheba, which is the very south, every man sat under his vine and fig tree in safety. Now, sitting under the vine and fig tree is the Bible's picture of Eden. That's why when you go to Micah 4, and it talks about in the last days when God will reign on his holy mountain, and everybody will flock to Jerusalem and get teaching of Torah in God's word, and it will be not just for God's people, but for all peoples, all nations, And it says, and every man sat under his vine and fig tree in safety. It's a picture, the restoration of Eden. So here you have Solomon. His name means what? Prince of Peace. So you have God's people in God's place under Prince of Peace, bringing peace to the world. And it's good. And it's right. But as quickly as that whole thing came to fruition, just like the Garden of Eden, it all comes crashing down. It falls into ruin and destruction. And Israel, like Adam and Eve, will eventually be expelled from the Garden. And what I want to say right now as we go further into Kings is, Brace yourselves, because this whole story is going to go from bad to worse. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 11. Stand for the reading of God's word. I don't want to forget that this time. And we're going to start at verse 28. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way. He was wearing a new coat, a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of his new cloak that he was wearing, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And then he said to Jeroboam, you take 10 pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, 
I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hands, and I'm going to give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David, because of the promise I made to him, and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, the place where God places his name, David will have his one tribe. So now skip down to chapter 43, the last verse. Chapter 11. Then he, that's Solomon, rested with his ancestors. He was buried in the city of David, his father. And his son, Rehoboam, the son, his son, succeeded him as king. Now into chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, because he was still in Egypt when he had fled from King Solomon. And the reason he fled from King Solomon is because Solomon saw him as a threat and tried to kill him. So Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Give me three days to think about this and come back to me. So the people went away. Now let's just uh, go down and skip to verse 12. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. And the king said, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. So the king answered the people harshly. What you need to know is during this time, he sought the advice of the old men and the young bucks. And he went with the young guys. And we'll look at that. But this is what uh, he says. He followed the advice, not of the elders, but of the young men. And he said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord that he had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, although Ahijah through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, we sh- we share- What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. In other words, we're done with you. So the Israelites went home, and uh, Rehoboam now r- rules over Judah. Jeroboam becomes their king. This is God's word. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, so a lot's going on here. Rehoboam becomes the successor to the throne. And all I can say about Rehoboam is what a cocky, insecure fool. He is a fool. At his coronation ceremony, he has the entire nation gathered at Shechem. Shechem. What's Shechem? Places mean something in the Bible. Shechem. Well, it became a place where they weren't supposed to go. What else? That arose, became a high place because it was a high place 
But it's the first place that Abraham enters. When he gets to the land, he arrives at Shechem, and it's at that place that God says, Abraham, you have made it. And in that place, yes, it is a pagan place of worship. Abraham turns it into into an altar to the Lord. And right there, we now have God's promise coming to Abraham, God's fulfillment. And then that's bracketed, starting in Genesis 12, all the way to Joshua 24. Where now you see God's people in God's place, under God's rule... God fulfilling all the promises that he's, that he's made to Abraham. And Joshua gathers them at Shechem. And he says, okay, look at what God has done. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, stake is in the ground. We're serving him. And the whole nation rallied around Joshua and said, and so are we. And so they come to this place, and Rehoboam has such an opportunity to bring about covenant renewal, national revival, to stand up and to be the man, to be a Joshua, to be the king. But rather than to shepherd them as, as God's king, He plays the fool. In fact, look at 1 Kings. These are some verses that we didn't read. Chapter 12, starting at verse 8. Rehoboam went and first he sought out the old men. But he rejected the advice of the elders. And basically what the elders told him is be good to the people. Serve them. And they will serve you. But he didn't like that. So then in verse 10, he goes to the young men, all these punks probably who he'd grown up with, and listen to what they say. These people had said, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. You tell them this, my little finger literally reads, my little finger thing is thicker than my father's waist. Yeah. And then you tell them that my father scourged you with whips. I scourged you with scorpions. This is elementary school potty talk. And see, now we see how far the king has fallen God's idea of king, rather than being the shepherd who leads them and guides them and lays his life down for them, now you have a king who's exploiting the sheep. He's beating the sheep, abusing the sheep. And now I'm into Lord of the Rings. Sorry, I haven't been there in a long time, but that ring of power has been entrusted by God to the king's. And as God's precious, these kings are given the precious. They're given the ring of power, and they can't handle it. It poisons them, and it ruins them. And now where we are in our story is we're right back in Exodus. 
Because God's people, his flock, are once again under the heavy yoke of a pharaoh. And the fallout from this is going to be devastating. The kingdom is going to be torn apart. It's going to be torn into two. There's going to be a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There's going to be Judah and Israel. And this division will lead to not only disintegration of God's people, but ultimately exile. And see, it's under this this heavy yoke of of Rehoboam, who is now acting again like a pharaoh, that Jeroboam essentially rises up and becomes kind of a new Moses. He becomes kind of this liberating savior of Israel. And here's the question. Who's behind all this? Who? God. God sits on the throne. God is the one who's orchestrating under all of this. And, I mean, listen to what God promises Jeroboam in in, in chapter 11, 37 and 38. However, as for you, Jeroboam, I will take you, and, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be the king over Israel, over those ten tribes. If you do whatever I command you, and you walk in obedience to me, and you do what is right in my eyes, by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, you do all this, Jeroboam, I will be with you, and I will give you a house, I will give you a dynasty, as enduring as the one I built for David, and gave, I will give to Israel, to you. But here's the problem with Jeroboam. Instead of being like the the new Moses, he instead is like Aaron. Do you guys remember that part of the story? People are in the wilderness. Exodus 32. This is right after God takes Israel, his segulah, his prized possession, to be his bride. Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord, He's getting the ketubah, the wedding contract, because the Ten Commandments are more than just rules. They are our wedding vows. So they're waiting for Moses, and Aaron and the people grow restless. So the people say to Aaron, make us a God who will lead us. Aaron says, go get me all your gold. He takes all their gold, He melts it, and then he fashions it into a golden calf. And then he says this, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And then Aaron says, Tomorrow, we're going to feast. To who? Yahweh. You're like, what? Golden calf? Yahweh? See, Aaron is not introducing them to a pagan god. What he's doing is he's worshiping Yahweh through a pagan means. Because the calf was something that was worshipped in Egypt. They were familiar with this god. They were familiar with the worship of this god. And I can't go into detail here, but... The worship of this God was incredibly sensual. It was incredibly erotic. I mean, you almost have to think orgy. 
That's why it says then, the next day, when the people came out to feast, it says the people sat down, they ate, they drank, and they rose up to play. See, they're worshiping Yahweh through a play that is probably every bit as erotic as the Egyptians' form of worship. So now let's go back to our story. Jeroboam gets the ring of power. What does he do? Rather than trusting God, rather than going God's way, the ring ruins him. Because he becomes so paranoid about losing the power that God gave to him. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12. After seeking more advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. He set one up at Bethel and the other, Dan. And this thing became a sin. He builds two calves, just like Aaron. Same words come out of his mouth that came out of Aaron's mouth. Here is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. He's very strategic about this because he places these uh, calves then at Dan and Bethel. Bethel means what? House of God. And it was a house of God long before Solomon built his temple. I mean, Abraham made this a place of worship. This is the place where Jacob had his dream. So Jeroboam can now say to the people, hey, this is nothing new. We're just going back to our roots here, folks. We're going to worship the way Israel worshipped God a long time ago. We're going to worship the golden calf, just like Aaron did in the, in, in the desert. We're going to worship at Bethel, just like Abraham and Jacob, because we are the true Jacob. See, and if you don't think this is what Jeroboam is doing... He then names his children Nadab and Abihu. Same names of Aaron's kids. Now, here's where I want to stop. Because I read this, and I think to myself, there is something about this that sounds good. Because you know what it is? It's easy religion. It's consumer friendly. It's God on my terms. It makes my life a lot easier. I mean, rather than having to walk days down to Jerusalem, I can now just walk hours to either Dan or Bethel. I can at least see this God. And see, I think this sin here is so subtle because the name Yahweh is still attached to it. So while Jeroboam is not breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, he is breaking the second commandment, which says you are not to worship God through any images. And if you do, says God, this will be punished to the third and fourth generation. And I'll tell you what this sin is called. It's the sin of syncretism. The sin of syncretism is when we extract God 
out of the place where he's placed himself and we put him in our own place or our own paradigm that's more familiar or comfortable to us. And see, we do this because we want to make God conceivable. We want to relate to God on our terms. So we craft God into our image. We fashion him according to our likeness. But listen to me. We aren't the ones who make God. God is the one who makes us. We don't conform God to our likes. God conforms us to his likes. And I'm telling you right now, there are people here right now who are so on this page of God's the means, I'm the end. And I make God, he doesn't make me. And then we label and attach Christianity to that. I'm going to tell you, the moment we do that, we cease to worship God. And we are left only to worship ourselves. Let me just ask this question. At this part in the story, where has God placed him, himself? Where? Well, he's placed himself in his house. And his house is where? It's in Jerusalem. God says, I put my name there. <laughs> That's where I put my name. Remember the tabernacle. Some of you missed this. This was New Year's Day when we, when we looked at this. But if you remember, I mean, God gave such detailed instructions about how they were to build it. And then specific instructions about how they were to worship him there. And then he gave them a specific calendar about how they were to go about to do this and when they were to do this. And see, there's a reason why God does this. Because through his specific instructions, God is communicating to us, first of all, who he is. Then he's communicating to us who we are in light of him. And thirdly, he's communicating to us how we are to approach him. And see, when people say things like, well, I live in the 21st century here. I'm not into priests and temples and sacrifices. I don't need all that stuff. I can just speak to God on my own terms. You know what I say? You don't know him. You're not speaking to God. You're speaking to yourself. See, I love how C.S. Lewis presents this picture through the Narnia Chronicles. There's only one door into Narnia. And people can't create, oh, I want to put a door here. Or let's put a door here. No, there's only one door. In the same way, there's only one door that gets us into God. There's only one way back into his garden. And so when we turn our back on God's way, when we turn our back on God's door, we're turning our back on God. Now let me ask this question. Where is God today? Where's the door 
into God? Where's the way back into Eden? We all know this is a Sunday school answer, right? Jesus said, I am the door for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will find pasture, green pasture. I am the way, says Jesus. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we can't say today even that because we have Jesus that we don't need a temple, we don't need a priest, we don't need a sacrifice. Oh, we need him. The good news is that Jesus is the priest, the temple, the sacrifice. And the place where you and I are going to find Jesus today is where? Here. This is where he's placed himself. And with the enabling of the Holy Spirit and this book, this is where I meet him. And when we extract God out of the place where we have put him and we place him in places that are more convenient to us or more ecstatic or more accessible or more consumer friendly, I'm telling you, we've constructed a golden calf. So here's the question. What are our golden calves today? Now, I'm going to suggest a few. Some of you may even leave the church over these. But I'm just now in application mode, and I'll let you chew around with this, okay, and play around with it. But I've come up with five or six, and depending on the time, it'll determine how many I give. But the big golden calf today in our culture, as I see it, is individualism. It's this golden calf that this whole thing is all about me. Me and God. God and me. And I don't want to take that thing off the table. Of course it's individualistic. But when we just leave it there, where we reduce the gospel to this private religious experience... And keep it there. We're missing the fact, yes, God loves you. But God did not come to this world to die for you. Just you. Christ died to purchase a people. And through this people, this called out people, he wants to partner with them to redeem the world. And so the gospel isn't just meant for you in your private world. It's meant for the world. And I get more and more people that say to me these days, they say things like, you know, I can't stand the church, but I love Jesus. Do you, you hear something like that? Two of Paul's most primary metaphors about the church are one, the church is Christ's body. Two, the church is Christ's bride. So for someone to say, I love Christ, but I can't stand his body, would be like me saying to Libby, I love you, Libby, but I can't stand your body. See, if you don't love 
his body, his bride, his church. You're probably worshiping a golden calf. Second one. I was going to have a PowerPoint of the bull on Wall Street. (laughs) Um, Because materialism. It's this golden calf of extracting God out of his word, placing him in the American dream. It's this idea that God is here to make me healthy and wealthy. And see, the God I read in the scriptures, while he can make you healthy and wealthy, God's main intent is to make you holy. And the way he often does this is he takes away your health and he takes away your wealth so you can see that he is enough and more than enough. Play around with that one. Another one I have here is Rationalism. And a lot of these things are just true to, to our Western culture. In our Western culture, we make our mind God. And see, we just think that we can figure out anything and everything with our minds. And therefore, we, we translate this to God. And we, we automatically think that we can just figure out God completely through our minds. And so what we oftentimes do then is we extract the word, namely the New Testament... Out of its Old Testament, Hebraic context, and we take the New Testament and we pour it into our Western philosophical systems and we start proof texting it to death and cut it up and divide it up to make it fit our philosophy and our philosophical categories. And see, while God gives us minds, To make sense of his word. God's word does not fit into a western philosophical system. And I think we forget sometimes that God wrote this book through Middle Easterners, to Middle Easterners, to simple people who don't see the world abstractly. They see the world concretely. We need, if we're going to understand the book... Understand the book as God gives it on its terms. Another one. Hyperspirituality. Like, oh no, where am I going with this? Basically, it's when we extract God out of his word and we place him in our own personal experience. I am not here to say that we ought not have a personal experience with God. He says, taste and see that I am good. So we taste him. We see him. We experience him. We adah him, okay? That is all a part of it. But if it's only that, and it's only an experience, I'm scared about this one. Because recently I had a young student come up to me And she was in tears. And she said, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And my first thought is, oh no, what'd you do? I didn't say that. But she said, I said, why? Her answer, 
I don't feel God. I don't sense him. Is that what being a Christian is? That we feel him? That we sense him? No. That we trust him. We obey him. And our faith does not rise and fall on our feelings of him. I'm going to push this further. Signs, wonders, healings. There's so much intrigue with this today. And it's attached to what I'm talking about. We want to sense him. We want to feel him. Speaking in tongues. I'm not here to say that there isn't such a thing as signs, wonders. Are you kidding me? And I'm not here to say that God can't heal. He heals. We're going to pray on Wednesday nights for God to heal. But our faith isn't based on that. And I look at speaking in tongues even. Everybody's intrigued with this. All I see in the Bible about tongues is it's attached to Corinth. Corinth is the most worldly, carnal, immature church. I don't want to be Corinth. I want to be Philippi. I want to be Colossae. I want to be Ephesus. Okay, play around with it. Gnosticism. Can I touch that one or not? I'm not going to. I don't have time. But I'll just say this. There is such a, a separation in the West. This goes all the way back to Greek philosophy. This is exactly what the New Testament is addressing because it's entering a Hellenistic Western world where a lot of the Western world separates the mind, the material, physical from the spiritual. And it says that the spiritual is good, the flesh, the material is bad. That is not biblical. It isn't. And then it creates off of that this this secret society of people who really get it, who really understand the spiritual world and, and, and everything that's behind it. What's that book that Dan Brown wrote not too long ago that turned into a movie? Da Vinci Code. We love the Da Vinci Code. Why do we love the Da Vinci Code? Because what we really want to believe is that there's this secret society behind everything. And if we could just break into that world, we're going to get it all figured out. That's Gnosticism. This is not a secret. It's plain. It's for you. It's not for this special people that somehow get it. One more. Nationalism, patriotism. This is when we extract God out of his word and we place him in the American flag. It's when God bless America turns into this thing. God is on our side. He isn't. God is for the nations. What God are you worshiping? 
you will never know unless you know this book. This is how he communicates to us. And see, Jeroboam's legacy here is that as the new Moses, trying to be the new Moses, he actually leads them into the spiritual wilderness. Because the northern kingdom, Israel, will continue into into this sin for, for its entire history. And to me, the tragedy here is that when you plug this into this framework of the kingdom, of God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, bringing God's rule and God's blessing to the nations. God has placed his people in a specific place. He's put them on Main Street. He's put them at the world's crossroads, where the whole world passes through them, where they can be this city on a hill and this light to the nations. And when they could be offering the world the Garden of Eden... They're bankrupt and broken and have nothing, absolutely nothing to offer the world. All right, this is what I want to end with. How do we make sense of all this? Who's to blame? Well, I don't want to excuse the people, but it's the king. It's the Lord's anointed. It's the Lord's son who's... who's the Lord's precious, who's given the precious. The kingdom is torn in two because the king is torn in two. And here's what I want to say. As as much as Rehoboam is a power-hungry pharaoh, as much as Jeroboam is just kind of an insecure apostate Aaron, all of this, sadly to say, goes back to who? Solomon, Prince of Peace. Because go to chapter 11. Verse 28. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. And about that time, Jeroboam was going out to Jerusalem, and Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing, and he tore it into 12 pieces. So what you have here is the prophet of God wearing this new cloak. He, he tears the cloak into 12 pieces, representing Israel, the 12 tribes. Then he gives 10 of those pieces to Jeroboam, Because what this is a picture of is that the kingdom now is torn. But here's what's interesting. The word for cloak has the same exact consonants as Solomon's name. Meaning, not only is Israel torn, Solomon is torn. And when you read the story, you see that Solomon's heart is torn into pieces. And of all people, Solomon has been made for God. He's been made to belong to God. He's been made to have his heart and his life fully centered on God. 
We know how this thing starts. It starts off so well in 1 Kings 3, verse 3. It says, Solomon loved the Lord. But then eight chapters later, at the beginning of chapter 11 in verse 1, it says this, Solomon loved his pagan wives. Then you go to verse 2, and it says his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. And how many wives did he have? A thousand. I mean, this is obnoxious. This isn't just unfaithfulness. This is in your face, over the top. And see, what happens is when Solomon ceases to be wholehearted, not only does Solomon cease to be Solomon, because to be Solomon, to be a whole, a healthy, authentic whole, it starts off with being wholehearted. And see, this is the effects of idolatry. Verse 2 says, he's clinging to his women. See, and when someone outwardly clings to their idols in this way, it's because inwardly they're detached, they're torn, they're desperately empty, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says Solomon. And that's our culture today. It's empty, it's detached, it's desperately lonely, yet it's clinging We cling to sport. We cling to our jobs. We cling to our money. We cling to our pleasures, our addictions. We cling to just anything that will fill the void. And see, the whole secret to being a healthy, whole person is being wholehearted unto the Lord. That's why David says, God, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Where are your affections today? Only you know. Do you love him with your whole heart? What are you clinging to? Honestly, what are you clinging to? Now here's the real tragedy of Solomon. He's more than a person. He's the king. And as king, he's Israel's representative. And his torn heart now leads to a torn kingdom. The divided kingdom is a result of Solomon's divided heart. In fact, the text says, we didn't have time to read this, but in chapter 11, God then raises up adversaries. He raises up in in verse 14, Hadad. He raises up in verse 23, Rezin. He raises up then in verse 26, which we've learned about Jeroboam. Two of these are external, an Edomite and a Gentile. One is internal, an Israelite. In fact, these three adversaries will oppose Israel throughout its history. They will be a thorn in their flesh. Also, what's interesting, this word for adversary here is the word in, is what word in Hebrew does anybody know? Satan. Satan, meaning Solomon, unlike his father David, he's 
powerless to crush Satan's head because of his idolatry. And I know what some of you are saying. Wait a second. You mean God raises up Satan? Yep. He does. Because God is on the throne. And God said this to David and to, any, and to his whole house. He says, I will be a father. He will be my son. And when the king does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and the floggings inflicted by men. And then you go to 1 Kings 12, verse 15. I just want to show you, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to end this as soon as possible. I'm sorry, I'm going way too long today. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from who? The Lord. In fact, in Hebrew, it literally means twist. A twist from Yahweh. And what? the author of this book is telling us is that the tearing of the kingdom is called a twist from Yahweh, which means God is in control. God is on the throne in spite of Solomon's failure, in spite of Rehoboam's foolishness, in spite of Jeroboam's disobedience, God sits on his throne. Even Satan's are at his feet. And I'll tell you, there's an even bigger twist going on. In spite of Solomon's gross, it's absolutely gross, his unfaithfulness. The story of Kings is about God's faithfulness to his promise that David's son will reign forever. And this seed from Abraham will bless all the peoples of the earth. And what Kings is going to teach us is that this promise will come at great cost to Israel. Because I don't know if you know this. We can see it from history. We can certainly see it from the text. The history of Israel is a story of sacrifice. It's a story of a holy people who are being torn into two or broken into pieces, starts with Abraham. Abraham is called to sacrifice. He's called to suffer. The moment God calls him, the world now is divided into two. There's Jew now, there's Gentile, and Jews are God's special chosen people. And as God's special people, they are called to sacrifice and to suffer. And what we're going to see even at the end of Kings is that their land and their temple and this people are going to be offered up as a sacrifice, as a holocaust, as a whole burnt offering. And you say, why? Because all of this points to true Israel, God's king, God's son. When he comes... He will come as true Israel. And he is going to bring about the ultimate twist from God. Jesus, the true prince of peace, is going to unite Israel and Judah together as one. And he will do this by being torn 
He will be beaten by rods and floggings inflicted by men. And like that bread that he raised at the Last Supper, he will be broken in two. He'll be offered up as a holocaust. And in so doing, says Ephesians 2, he will take not only Judah and Israel, but Jew and Gentile and make them into one new man. A new humanity. Are you part of it? Are you? Shema Israel, Adonai Eloehu, Adonai Akkad, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And love your neighbors yourself. God, thank you for giving a king. And even though all these earthly sons blew it and failed miserably, miserably, you remain faithful to your promise. Because we live on this side, Lord, the gospel. We see your king and what your king did. I pray, God, that we would forsake worshiping the golden calves, that we would lay down our idols, and that we would worship you, King Jesus, with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. You're so worth it, Jesus.